If you want the latest info, tips, and strategies to grow your online course or membership, check out the Thought Leaders Business Lab podcast. And now here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a leadership development podcast told through the lens of Star Trek. And now here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me today. The theme of Kirk's masterful management practices continues in this episode. He demonstrates authenticity and impressive emotional intelligence, creates a welcoming and inclusive environment, and helps his team manage through emotional responses. All of this as we start the 16th episode of the second season of the original series, A Private Little War. We're on some planet, and McCoy is gathering samples while Kirk and Spock explore an area. Spock finds tracks of a large, dangerous creature from this planet called a Mugatu. Kirk led the survey team to this planet back about 13 years ago when he was a lieutenant. He waxes nostalgic about how peaceful the inhabitants of the planet were. Bows and arrows for hunting, but absolutely no fighting among themselves. And almost immediately, that gets thrown in his face. We hear the inhabitants yelling at each other and carrying flintlocks. These are ancient by their standards. Well, really, probably by ours, too. Firearms. One group is setting up an ambush for the other group. Stakes get high really fast as Kirk realizes... One of those men walking into ambush is Tyree. Tyree is a buddy of Kirk's. They lived together when Kirk was undercover and conducting his survey 13 years ago. We're going to talk quite a bit about young Kirk and his opportunity as a lieutenant to run a mission on his own because, and let's just, let's just be honest here. If Kirk, if Kirk followed the example of his captain from back in those days, he would not be planet side right now, but more on that later. Knowing they can't use their phasers, Kirk throws a rock as a distraction and the fight is on. They scuffle as the crew tries to rendezvous for a beam out, but Spock, Spock gets shot right through the heart. He has the wherewithal to stop Kirk from using his phaser as McCoy calls for an emergency transport. Dr. Mabenga and Nurse Chapel are waiting for them in the transporter room. McCoy shares that Lucky his heart's where his liver should be, or he'd be dead now. That's a that's a that's a pretty racist way to assess his physiology, yeah? Well, still, he's in bad shape, but not as bad as he would have been if he had been shot actually through through his heart. As Mabenga and McCoy are triaging Spock, Uhura comes over the comm with a red alert. It's Klingons. Kirk heads to the bridge, and they set up their orbit to avoid detection. Kirk and Scotty debate the terms of a treaty being violated here. Kirk believes the Klingons are supplying weapons technology to the indigenous people of the planet. I mean, where else would they get the flintlocks? But Scotty says there's there's no proof they're getting that from the Klingons. Both the Federation and the Klingons have a right to research on unclaimed planets. And this, this is an unclaimed planet. Now, they never reference which treaty they're talking about. I'm going to assume it's the Treaty of Organia, which was signed back in the first season of TOS. So, I, I don't know, about a year, about a year before this point. Now, I, I know that's, uh, that's some pretty deep nerd stuff there. Nerd! But what's important here is that Scotty feels comfortable enough disagreeing with Kirk. 
and not just disagreeing with them, but doing it on the bridge in front of everybody else and doing it in a conversational, non-threatening way. This invites Uhura and Chekhov to join in, but yikes, unfortunately, Kirk shuts it down. But there were the Klingons behind it. Why didn't they get them breech loaders or machine guns or old style hand did not invite a debate. Not a great move by Kirk here, but he follows it up with a brilliant and humble, humble move. I'm sorry. I'm worried about Spark and concerned about what's happened to something I once knew down there. Now that was a great pivot. Leaders are people. And I know that might be a surprise to some of us. Heck, it might even be a surprise to some leaders out there, too. I'm not a puppet. I'm a real boy. But that means that leaders make mistakes. A strong leader, though, will own those mistakes and take accountability for them. And that's exactly what Kirk did here. So not only did he recover from shutting his crew down, but he opened the door to more of a connection with them because he was open, he was honest, and, and, and he was vulnerable. We learned that Dr. Mabenga interned on a Vulcan ward, so he knows their physiology really well. McCoy actually says that Spock couldn't possibly be in better hands. He explains that his body will remain basically unconscious as it heals itself. And then Dr. Mabenga tells Nurse Chapel that if Spock wakes up, she needs to do absolutely anything Spock tells her to. It'll, it'll be part of the healing process, no matter how ridiculous it might sound. While that conversation is going on, McCoy and Kirk have a great back and forth where Kirk, Kirk once again flexes his manager muscles. I can't leave Spock at this time. You just indicated you could. And then it gets even better. He wants McCoy to go with him to the planet to see if the Klingons are legitimately conducting research or not. And then he owns his bias and he owns his limitation. And I need help. Advice I can trust. They head to the planet's surface dressed as native inhabitants. Scotty is left in charge of the ship and warns Kirk that to remain undetected by the Klingons, they'll be out of communication and transporter range sporadically. So they set up predetermined rendezvous times. Kirk decides not to risk checking in with Starfleet Command because that could jeopardize their ability to stay hidden by sending that communication out. But to his credit, he at least notes this in his log so that if something goes south, it's documented that why he's doing this. This, this on his own. They beam down to the planet and they're wearing the weird civilian outfit that Commander Shepard can wear in Mass Effect 2. I don't know why anybody would ever pick that one. But they did decide to skip out on the really stylish wigs that the inhabitants wear, though. Within seconds of materializing, a Magatu attacks. But you can help these children, Derek, by killing the Prime Minister of Malaysia. McCoy blasts it with his phaser, but not before Kirk is infected with its poison. The Enterprise is at a communicator range, so they decide to try and find Tyree. Kirk believes his people can cure the poison. They get to the village, and the villagers fetch Tyree. Tyree is the leader of the village now, and his wife is the one who knows how to cure the poison. And she is she is something else. We see them on the hunt. Tyree with his bow and arrow. She is pressuring him hard to get the fire sticks that the villagers have. We also learn that she and her people understand the herbs of this planet, use them for both medicine and to manipulate people by, well, by basically getting them super high. 
In the cave, McCoy uses his phaser to heat up rocks around Kirk as he's in extreme shock. While he's finishing up and isn't watching the cave entrance, Tyree's wife, Nona, sees him using that phaser. She doesn't say anything, but she gets that, you know, that knowing look on her face. She heads out of the cave and talks to Tyree, ends up manipulating him into telling Kirk's whole story. Which, honestly, (laughs) how does Tyree even know the whole story unless Kirk actually blew it on his mission back 13 years ago, right? And told him the whole story about being from a spaceship and all that stuff. Tyree, Tyree agrees to tell the story. Tyree and Nona enter the cave and come to McCoy. She has a Mako root, which, which is basically a wobbly rubber poop toy. You used to be able to order out of the back of a magazine. She puts it on the Magatu wound while Tyree beats a drum and bam, he's healed up. God bless McCoy in this scene. He just, he just looks disgusted and horrified, but he lets it happen. He knows that there's nothing he can do to help Kirk. And this, honestly, this is the best option he's got. He thanks Nona. And then he says, I would like to learn more about this, which is great. You have to love the curiosity he shows here. This is McCoy demonstrating cultural competence like a pro. He absolutely has his own biases here, but he he doesn't approach this from a place of judgment. No, no, he's curious. He wants he wants to understand. But he gets a cryptic answer that basically amounts to, well, Kirk and Nona are joined now, and he won't be able to refuse her any wish. Kirk wakes up and is excited to see Tyree. They head off to talk about the villagers and their firearms. He says the fire sticks started being used about a year ago. He agrees to take Kirk and McCoy to the village to scope it out. Nona comes in and says she knows about the phasers and... Tyree has told me much of you. Well, looks like the cat's out of the bag. She tries pressuring them to share everything with her, but Kirk... Kirk stands up to her and explains that both their ethics and their rules prohibit them from sharing technology like this. She continues to press the point and Tyree stands up for himself. He insists they deal with this peacefully in that they do not kill. Nona is deeply offended and storms off. He has the wrong friends. I had the wrong husband. Tyree supports Kirk, though, and they head off towards the village. They arrive, and Kirk is worried they're going to have to fight. McCoy, gosh, McCoy, McCoy is so awesome. He he tries to shut Kirk up by saying, This man believes in the same thing we believe in, that killing is stupid and useless. Yep, that's about as plain as you can say it. In one of the buildings, we meet the leader of the villagers, Appella, who's meeting, yep, with a Klingon, Krell. He's giving improvements on the design of the firearms. You see, North secretly sold missiles to a harmless country called Iran that would always be a grateful ally. While scoping out the village, Kirk and McCoy find a forge where they've been making the flintlocks. Quick tricorder scan shows the materials came from somewhere other than this planet. They've confirmed that Klingons are involved just as Krell and Appella come into the forge. They hide, and Krell reveals some of the plan. You will be rich one day, Appella, beyond your dream, the leader of a whole world. A governor in the Klingon Empire. 
But McCoy, well, McCoy makes a noise and, and it's on. Full on Star Trek fight ensues. Villagers are firing at them as they run, but, but they make their escape barely. On the Enterprise, Spock wakes up. Hit me. She and Mabenga oblige, and he comes to. That will be quite enough. He seems to be in good shape and returns to duty. On the planet, because they've confirmed the Klingon involvement, Kirk is teaching Tyree's people how to use the flintlocks. McCoy is losing his mind. Have you gone out of your mind? Kirk explains the plan is to maintain a status quo. He's not going to give them superior weapons, but will equalize both sides. Well, if you're like me, you're older than me and grew up in the 60s or 70s or even 80s, this uh, sounds pretty familiar, right? Well, in the context of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, this is a very familiar situation that we explored in TNG's Too Short a Season. Kirk then gives a, gives a monologue about what Star Trek calls the brush wars of the 20th century that are that are clearly meant to represent the Vietnam War, or or the American War, as they call it in Vietnam. He's supporting the policy of superpowers supplying the opposing sides of the conflict with weapons to maintain a status quo. If the Klingons give their side even more, then we arm our side with exactly that much more. A balance of power. But McCoy refuses to accept it. He says that because Tyree won't fight, this this balance of power means that he's going to be one of the first to die. I love that Kirk's crew are comfortable disagreeing with him. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes work that goes on to, to make this happen that we're, we're probably never really going to see on screen. But clearly, clearly it's happening. Kirk goes to Nona to try and convince her to help convince Tyree to fight. She has other plans, though. She... She basically roofies Kirk, uses an herb on him, but but he resists. But the herb superb does its job. Just as Tyree rounds the corner and can see them, Kirk embraces and kisses Nona. Kiss me. Tyree aims and cocks the flintlock at them, pauses, throws it to the ground, disgusted with himself. Just as he runs off, a Mugatu attacks. Kirk, Kirk is way too high to do much of anything. In fact, in fact, he probably just sees some dude wearing a, you know, stuffy, hot ape costume. Well, eventually, he comes to, he pulls out his phaser, and he blasts the Mugatu. I invented the piano key necktie! Nona knocks Kirk out with a rock and steals his phaser. She takes off and is intercepted by some villagers. She sure talks a mean game. She offers them the phaser, but but they don't know what it is or even understand what it could be. So so they attack her. She gets stabbed just as Kirk and Tyree's crew come upon them. It escalates into a firefight, and we get our second full-on Star Trek fight of the episode. Kirk hits a textbook dropkick on one of the villagers, and Tyree is going off. He's mounted on a villager, just pounding, pounding. Then he grabs a big rock to smash his head, and Kirk stops him. Nona dies from the stab wound, and, and Tyree succumbs. I want more of these, Kirk. Many more. I will kill them. Kirk has a defeated look on his face as Tyree heads off after the villagers that ran away. This is dark. Kirk, Kirk is beside himself. They break this up with a classic McCoy-Spock moment. Spock, are you alive? An illogical question, Doctor, since obviously you are hearing my voice. And then Kirk gives an order that, well, frankly, 
I hope, keeps him awake at night. It's an order Scotty can't even believe is real. I didn't get that exactly, Captain. A hundred, what? He wants a hundred flintlocks produced for Tyree and his people. A hundred serpents. Serpents for the Garden of Eden. This episode came out in February 1968, having been written in late 67. There is no way I can truly know what the world was at that time, but I know it was a different place in many ways than it is today. This episode was clearly targeted at a very specific situation of the time, but but like so much of Star Trek has a message that resonates through time. Come to Quark's Crisis Fun. Come right now. Don't walk. Run! Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discussing Trek. I'm your host, Clarence, and I wanted to introduce you to the podcast. Discussing Trek is all about keeping you informed on the latest news and episode reviews in the Star Trek universe, while also staying engaged with our community of listeners. So be sure to hit that subscribe button for weekly content and stay locked in to DiscussingTrek.com for more information. Until next time, guys, live long and prosper. Hello, this is Lafayette. And I'm Carlos. From Nerds Talking the Podcast. That's right. Where we talk about everything from UFOs, yep. comic books, like movies, uh-huh. streaming services, yeah. conspiracy theories, oh. ghosts, mm. video games, yeah. and more. Kick ass. All on Nerds Talking the Podcast. You can find us every Friday with new episodes on all digital platforms where you find your favorite podcast, Nerds Talking the Podcast. Are you looking for science fiction and comic book news without a whole lot of unnecessary spin? Then you're looking for Multiverse Tonight. Since 2018, Multiverse Tonight has covered the news about Star Trek, Star Wars, DC Comics, Marvel Comics, and anything else geek-related. We also have occasional interviews with creators and much, much more. That's Multiverse Tonight, hosted by me, Thomas Townley. Find it wherever you find podcasts, or go to our website at multiversetonight.com. First off, I I don't think I like this one very much. It stinks. The character of Nona was really interesting, but, but was written and performed in such a, such a late 60s way, you know? Over the top, weirdly kind of erotic, and, and not as mysterious as they, they maybe intended her to be. In fact, in my opinion... I feel like she brought down every scene she was in. She just totally took me out of it. And then, while Star Trek can have near timeless messages, the allegory is so, so on the nose, it's, it's, it's almost insulting. I think that's a Roddenberry thing. You know, taking a good idea and then removing all subtext and subtlety. A Judd Crucis is credited with writing this episode, but, but that's not even a real person. It's the name the actual writer, Don Ingalls, used instead. Apparently, he wrote the script, and then Roddenberry did a rewrite. Ingalls hated the rewrite so much, he used this name that he says meant Jesus crucified. <laughs> wow, that that's intense. But based on interviews with Ingalls, the episode that we just watched is very, very different than the one he intended. The beginning of this episode, before we learn about the flintlocks, well, and, and even after that, I suppose, was a really good illustration of the value of the Prime Directive. Here's a planet and a culture 
that left to itself could grow and develop into a peaceful utopia in, I don't know, a few thousand years. I mean, at least based on a Lieutenant Kirk's assessment. But through interference, now they're on a path to violence, war, and destruction. The Serpent in Eden reference was was very on point. Very, very accurate. Command codes verified. I'll be honest. On my first watch through of this, I thought this would be the episode I couldn't find any takeaways or lessons in. Wow, was I wrong. We're going to see the brilliance of Kirk's management as he creates safe and inclusive environments, is open and vulnerable, and helps manage through his emotions and the emotions of his crew. Well, most of the time. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Let me start right off by calling this episode out for doing what so much of the original series and, and Enterprise did. They made this about the captain instead of the crew that, that should have been running this mission. Why? Like, why in the world? Was Kirk on the planet's surface when they were just surveying plants and herbs? He had no business being there. I mean, Sulu, Sulu, right? You know, the guy that isn't even in this episode? Sulu is a trained botanist. But no, no, it's got to be Kirk that's down there. Thirteen years ago, when serving under Captain Garavik on the USS Farragut, he was assigned to lead the planetary survey crew for this planet. He made recommendations that steered Federation policy regarding the planet and even made a friend in Tyree that he was able to lean on here to save his life. But instead of Kirk offering that same opportunity to another person on the Enterprise, he had to lead this expedition himself. He literally stole an opportunity from a member of his crew. His survey was part of what led to his early promotion and has become part of his story, maybe, maybe even a part of his legend. But instead of letting one of the 400 plus people on his ship have a shot at that, he did it himself. Here I come to save the day. When has this happened to you? Seriously, when have you been ready and able and maybe even excited to take on a task or, or do a presentation or handle a responsibility and your boss just swooped in and did it instead? Not only does that feel terrible. But when that happens, you're missing out on a valuable opportunity. Let me let me give a personal example here. I recently hired a new sales manager for one of my organizations. They're super talented, but, but pretty inexperienced. We've only been working together a, a few months, but we've worked together closely on a number of pitches and opportunities. For the first few, I drove the discussions and they observed. Then we shared roles where we pitched together with them taking more and more of the pitch each time. Now, this shouldn't sound too groundbreaking or revolutionary to most of you. I mean, this is, this is kind of how you do it, right? Well, after a short amount of time, they were, they were ready and able to rock it on their own. I mean, they've been doing a great job. That is, until I messed it up by being Kirk. One of our long-term clients reached out directly to me to make some modifications to our agreement. Normally, when those come in, I send it off to my sales manager and they do what they do. But this was somebody I've worked with for a lot of years. So, so I took the meeting myself. And what's worse, I didn't even bother telling my sales manager. We meet, we have our call, work out the details, have a few laughs. You know, it's, it's great. That is until it wasn't. 
After that, I met with my sales manager and explained what I had done and what I had agreed to. And it absolutely did not work for her. She'd already committed the person I promised to our client and promised them over the same dates that I'd committed them to. (laughs) Whoops. Now, we were able to fix that. You know, I ate a little humble pie with the client, renegotiated dates, and, and, and we were good. Super easy. But now, now I've damaged my relationship with a newer member of the team that is just absolutely critical to operations. And not only that, I robbed them of the opportunity to meet this important client. I screwed up, screwed up big time, and the organization suffered because of it. To keep this from happening again, it's on me. I have to pause. When people reach out to me, I can't try to be the hero. That is not my job. My job is to develop my team and help create other heroes. That's what Captain Garavik did for Kirk. But Kirk and I, Kirk and I held onto the ball. We both dropped it too. Now for me, I have the responsibility and the desire to repair an important professional relationship. Kirk arguably, plunged a culture and civilization into a cycle of violence and war. But at the core of it, we both did tremendous damage because we wanted to be in the front. And that offers a decent segue into the takeaway. Managing emotions. I let my emotions drive me. I let my excitement to work with a fun person and group override what I knew I should have done. Now, despite all that, Kirk shines as a manager and as a human in a couple of scenes here. First, and we'll talk about this more here in a little bit, Kirk has worked to create an environment where it's safe for people to disagree with him. (laughs) That is so awesome. Author and speaker L. David Marquis, you've heard me reference him before, says the most valuable opinion is a dissenting opinion because it offers a, a different view of a situation or a problem. But in this episode, while that's happening with Scotty, Uhura, and Chekhov on the bridge, he lets his emotions get the better of him, and he snaps. did not invite a debate. He let his emotions override the environment he's worked hard to create, but he immediately owns this. I'm sorry. I'm worried about Spock. Like I said, leaders are human, and according to Spock, (laughs) that makes us flawed. I don't know that I'd say we're flawed necessarily, but we absolutely need to work hard to manage our reactions to situations. And frankly, that's it's not always possible. In fact, Kirk's reaction here is directly related to how deeply he cares for his friend. It would it would be inhuman for him to not be impacted by what's happened to Spock, but he still has a responsibility to his team and to his crew. Spock's crisis does not give Kirk permission to disrespect his crew. So he manages his emotions here by by being vulnerable. Self-regulation is one of the foundational aspects of emotional intelligence. The other four are self-awareness, social skills, empathy, and motivation. In that moment of vulnerability, when he apologizes, he demonstrates impressive emotional intelligence. He's aware that he reacted without empathy, so he regulates himself to a point where he can use his social skills to share his authentic feelings. It's really well done. But Kirk isn't just a great self-manager. He's a great manager for his team as well. If you remember the early scene in Sick Bay when we learned Dr. Mabenga had experience and understood Vulcan physiology, you'll remember that Kirk needed McCoy on the planet with him. 
McCoy had an immediate emotional response. He, he didn't want to leave Spock. And while that's touching, it's, it's just not practical. As the chief medical officer, he has a highly capable team and, and by his own words, has Spock in the best hands possible. Kirk gently reminds McCoy of what he said. I can't leave Spock at this time. You just indicated you could. Three great things in this moment. First, he doesn't judge, accuse, or get upset with McCoy. He's gentle and factual. Second, he reminds McCoy of his own objective assessment. He doesn't put words in his mouth or twist what McCoy said to achieve his aim. Third, he moves right into why McCoy is needed somewhere else. So he's gentle and objective, acknowledges and uses McCoy's words, and gives him immediate purpose. And when he gives that purpose, once again, he's honest and vulnerable. In fact, Kirk's vulnerability as a leader plays a huge role in much of this episode. We saw him acknowledge that he was distracted because of Spock's injury, and we saw him ask McCoy for help. I've worked with leaders and managers before, and I'm sure you have too, that feel some, I don't know, weird need to appear, to appear bulletproof, right? They're constantly unflappable. They try to appear impervious to the, to the dumpster fires they may be surrounded by. Um, I can assure you that at this time there's no reason for alarm, uh, but. And those are very frustrating people to work with. But luckily, Kirk isn't one of those people. Nope. He sets an example here that we can all follow and we should all follow. Let's dissect the moment he snapped at the crew on the bridge. Scotty, Chekhov, and Uhura were offering their input and opinions that happened to be contrary to Kirk's and he just shut them down hard. Now you do that more than one time and I promise you people will stop disagreeing with you because you just made it clear that you're right no matter what and you aren't interested in other opinions. And that, that's akin to death for a team or an organization. He didn't stop there, though. He caught himself and then made himself vulnerable by sharing his fear and his feelings. In that moment of vulnerability, he bought more than you might think. From that, we know that not only is it okay to disagree with Kirk to share your dissenting opinion, but we also know that he cares about the people on his team and if you're one of the people on the bridge with him in that moment, that, that means you. He cares about you. In that second of honesty and vulnerability, he clearly communicated that he cares for the people he works with. And I don't know about you, but me, I just might fight rabid dogs for somebody that cares about me like that. The same goes with McCoy. He could have just shut him down on his worry for Spock and told him he was beaming down with him. Instead, he asked for help. Oh, that is powerful. We talked about that with Janeway and Neelix in Voyager's Homestead episode. Generally speaking, people want to help. Makes them feel important, makes them feel needed. And that's what Kirk did here. He made McCoy feel needed. And for me, if I know someone cares about me and needs me, well, <laughs> I just might fight rabid dogs for them. Sorry, I think I have some weird obsession right now with rabid dogs. Maybe it's because I've been reading Value Tales books with my daughter, specifically the one about Louis Pasteur. The Value of Believing in Yourself, the story of Louis Pasteur, a value tale by Spencer Johnson, MD. Have any of you ever read these books? I think they're from the 80s, I think. Ugh, I love them. Total nostalgia. 
I'll wrap up by acknowledging what I've mentioned more than a few times so far. See, Kirk has created an environment and relationships where his team feels safe disagreeing with him. There are two key moments in this episode that highlight that, and we've talked about them in depth. The scene on the bridge with Scotty Uhura and Chekhov, and then near the end, oh, this is another one. It also happened near the end when McCoy calls BS on Kirk's balance of power soliloquy. I know. I know it wasn't actually a soliloquy. I, I just like saying that word. Soliloquy. It's fun. There's a lot that goes into creating an environment like this. It's consistent behavior where you not only invite other people's input and opinions, but you actively seek them out. We recently saw this from Picard on uh, on Code of Honor, where he asked for opinions from the crew. But inviting and seeking out input and opinions isn't enough on its own. You also have to take them seriously. You can't argue with them about it. You have to welcome the input. And a great way to do this is to actually accept and implement the ideas that others bring up when, when it makes sense to do so. This really is so easy to do, but you have to do it consistently and you have to be inclusive in doing it. There are two people that just about every team has, right? There's the person that won't hesitate to speak up. And then there's the person you have to pry input and participation out of. When you're inviting or seeking input, you cannot let that first person dominate. Bring the other person in. Blah, 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 blah. So so that's my initial idea. Hey, Ted, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Get them in before they get crowded out. You do that consistently and people will participate. They'll disagree. They'll offer input and you'll have a better, more complete set of options to work with. Invite and seek out, welcome the input, and be sure everyone is included. Rinse, repeat, and succeed. I would love to hear your story about a time your supervisor stepped in and took an opportunity that should have been yours. You know, like Kirk and and like I did. Tell me all about it. You can reach me on Twitter at SFLA Podcast, and you can follow me on all the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. Jeff T. as in Tyree, A-K-I-N. And bring your stories and thoughts to the Starfleet Leadership Academy podcast group on Facebook. Click the link in the show notes to get there. <laughs> Can't wait to see you there. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. Season 5, Episode 8 of Deep Space 9, Things Past. How timely. I recently recorded an episode with Brent on the Beam Me Up podcast to talk about this season of Deep Space 9. I'm not I'm not sure if that episode is out yet, but I recommend this podcast to all of you. It's the Beam Me Up podcast. It's a fun way to watch through Star Trek. In this episode, we'll get a real look at the Cardassian occupation on Deep Space 9, then called Terok Nor. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. But until then, ex astra scientia. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement. 
where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electricast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Electricast. Electricast.